Welcome to the 366th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome social psychologist Orla Muldoon to explore the value of social solidarity in public adherence to health messaging during COVID-19. We'll talk about that and other topics coming up in just a few moments on COVID calls. And just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID calls episode at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 27th, 2021, there are 4,963,243 deaths from COVID-19 globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Benny Peet, band leader who kept the beat after Katrina dies at 45. This appeared in the New York Times. September 18th, 2021, by Alex Vadukul. Vinnie Pete, a New Orleans tuba player who co-founded and led the Hot Eight, one of the city's high-profile brass bands, and dedicated himself to preserving the musical traditions of the Big Easy after Hurricane Katrina, died September 6th, 2021, at a hospital there. He was 45. His wife, Lamika Segura Pete, said the cause was complications of sarcoidosis, an inflammatory disease, and COVID-19. Soul of New Orleans is rooted in music. Second line parades march for hours down its streets with brass bands, followed by dancers holding feathered parasols and sipping drinks. New Orleans honors its dead with jazz funerals that strut through town, celebrating life through a musical sacrament with the city. Born and raised in the Upper Ninth Ward, Mr. Pete embraced this heritage. He started playing the tuba at age 10 and joined a marching band in middle school. At 18, he helped bring together two brass bands, the Looney Tunes and the High Steppers, to form the Hot Eight. The Hot Eight began playing for tips on Bourbon Street and in Jackson Square in the heart of the French Quarter. They performed outside a housing project in the Central City neighborhood where people sat down with bags of crawfish and bottles of a beat-up beer to listen. Mr. Pete once found himself leading a jazz funeral for a dog. He was a popular dog for one of the popular musicians, he told Esquire magazine in 2014, and they threw a big second line parade through the streets for him. They'd make a reason to party. By 2000, the Hot Eight had established itself as part of a vanguard of young brass bands that were upholding the jazz and funk traditions of New Orleans, yet playing with a contemporary sound. The Hot Eight's repertoire included songs by The Specials and Marvin Gaye, and the band incorporated rap and hip hop into its style. The musicians led second lines on Sundays for social aid and pleasure clubs. Crowds formed at night to watch them play in bars in the Treme neighborhood. 
After Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, the preservation of New Orleans musical heritage became a matter of serious concern. Countless musicians were displaced and evacuated and long-standing jazz and blues clubs were left in ruin. Mr. Pete and a few bandmates ended up in Atlanta. Two months later, the Hot Eight regrouped to lead the first jazz funeral in New Orleans after the storm. The band played with donated instruments and members of the procession wore salvaged pieces of finery. The parade, which honored a celebrated chef, Austin Leslie, started at Pampy's Creole Kitchen in the seventh ward before ambling to the former site of Shehaline, where a sign greeted the marchers, we won't bow down, save our souls. As despair weighed on the city, the Hot Eight began performing at evacuation shelters and emergency medical centers. They drove around in a van, stopping to jam for crowds until little second lines formed before heading to another part of town. It wasn't long before they became local heroes. Benny wanted to play for these people to give them that New Orleans love that was missing, his wife said. He and the band got busy spreading the culture around. When Spike Lee learned of the Hot Eight, he decided to feature them in his 2006 documentary about New Orleans when the levees broke. The film brought them national attention. They were signed to a British record label, toured with Lauryn Hill, and performed with Most Def. They appeared on the HBO show Treme and recorded with the gospel group The Blind Boys of Alabama. But even as music returned to New Orleans after the storm, the Hot Eight endured more misfortune. Their snare drummer, Dineral Shavers, was shot dead in his car in December of 2006, and it was only the latest in a series of tragedies for the band. In 1996, the trumpet player, Jacob Johnson, was shot. And in 2004, the trombonist, Joseph Williams, was killed in an encounter with the police. Just after Katrina, the trumpeter, Terrell Batiste, lost his legs in a road accident. Mr. Shaver's murder especially rattled Mr. Pete. I wanted to move, he told Offbeat Magazine. I was tired of New Orleans. I felt like I would be the one next. Ultimately, he resolved to stay, and the Hot Eight recorded an album to honor their fallen bandmates. Released in 2012, The Life and Times Of was nominated for a Grammy Award as Best Regional Roots Music Album. The group released Tombstone, a sister album, also based on the theme of remembrance the next year. The Hot Eight was also featured on a 2015 compilation album, New Orleans Brass Bands Through the Streets of the City. Benny Gerald Pete Jr. was born July 10, 1976. His father was a maintenance worker in the Garden District. His mother, Terry, was a homemaker. As a boy, he attended a Baptist church in the Seventh Ward where his maternal grandfather was pastor and he danced in the aisles as he sang gospel music. In addition to his wife, Mr. Pete is survived by three sons, Brandon, Brennan, and Benny III, two stepdaughters, Lachey Joseph and Layla Trask, and two sisters, Yvette and Ternisha Pete. For the last decade, the Hot Eight began touring regularly in Europe, in New Orleans, and the band performed on the vaunted stages of Tipitina's and the annual Jazz and Heritage Festival. During the lockdown, his health deteriorated. He lost 100 pounds, and when the Hot Eight recently resumed their Sunday residency at the Howlin' Wolf, he did not join them on stage. In the days after his death, brass bands in New Orleans mourned him with music. They led second lines through Treme, Central City, and the Garden District. The soulful notes of Just a Closer Walk with Thee, a hymn played to send off the dead, echoed into the night. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Orla Muldoon. 
Orla Muldoon is a professor of social psychology at the University of Limerick. She studies ways that social contexts and in particular social systems and structures can shape behavior, attitudes, and health. She regularly contributes to the to news media and in particular offers opinion editorials in the Irish Times. She's a current member of the Irish Research Council and serves on the Behavior and Communications Committee advising the National Public Health Emergency Team. Currently managing an ERC advanced grant that explores whether adversity, trauma, and its psychological consequences are driven by social identity change. And she has a second project exploring the value of social solidarity for public adherence to health messaging during COVID-19. Orla Muldoon, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. How's it all? Nice to be here, Scott. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what does the pandemic look like there today? Yeah, I'm calling from Limerick in Ireland. Um, it's on the uh, western half of Ireland um, and it's a pretty grey day, wintry. Um, the pandemic had been looking okay-ish here until about two weeks ago we've had pretty big lockdowns i think much bigger lockdowns than many other countries um we have very good vaccine uptake um but in the last two weeks we've had a pretty serious rise in case numbers um national government says we won't be going back into another lockdown but our current um case numbers suggest that our hospitals um, can't cope with much more. So that's where things are at. We're, well, I guess we could be edging towards more restrictions if not a full lockdown. And at the university, what's the situation there? Have the students been back? Have they been there throughout or have they been away? Oh no. So <laughs> our students um, left campus in March of 2020 and they didn't return to class until September 2021. So we really went into online teaching mode. Um, some courses, for instance, medicine, health sciences, lab based sciences, students were allowed return for lab classes um, in early 2021, but lectures haven't didn't return until uh, September 2021. And that is, it's only lectures with less than 200 students. They must all wear masks. There is an on-campus vaccine site to try and push up the vaccine rates amongst students. Um, so it, it's back, but it, it isn't like it was. And things like clubs and societies and the sort of extracurricular stuff is still, I think is still badly affected. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a personal memory of this pandemic and I know it's a it's a hard question because for people the density of memories is 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 pretty extraordinary but is there something that really resonates for you about this time so my father died um at the beginning of the first lockdown so in April 2020 um and he like many people was a very significant figure in my life my mother had predeceased him by nine months um so we he had looked after her in the last days of her life and we felt we should look after him um and it was just so incredibly difficult we couldn't really um we we couldn't visit him in hospital he didn't want to be in hospital we eventually got him out of hospital which was really like a jailbreak um getting him out of hospital so we kind of 
did this jailbreak, got him out of the hospital. And then we got him into his own home um, and it was just dreadful. Like we knew he was dying, but we couldn't get him any health care. We couldn't get him pain relief. We, um, so this sort of giant of a man in our lives that had looked after us all, we kind of felt that we didn't look after terribly well in the end. So, yeah, that's the that's the big one for me. And even things here and um, funerals are a, a huge issue in, in Irish culture. Um, I think we do funerals in the way that Americans do baseball. Like you, you could be at a funeral every day here if 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 you wanted. Um, they are part of the social fabric, and they're a way of people, sh if you like, showing regard for the living in as much as for the dead. Um, but they are a very clear way for a family to communicate regard for their dead, and and funerals were completely you were allowed to have um a maximum of 10 people at a funeral at that stage there there hadn't been any cultural change now what people are doing is lining the streets to indicate their care for none of that had occurred because it was so early in the pandemic mm. so we kind of felt like we were thrown to the wolves we you know we couldn't even have cousins and aunts and um yeah do you know what? i have two siblings in the states they couldn't come home um, so we kind of feel like we never got to give them a send off, which, you know, might sound very um, shallow, but I guess it's part of, uh, yeah, it's part of what we do here. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound shallow at all. And thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm sorry uh, for those losses in that time. And, and what you're describing, other people have described to me too, this um, jailbreak. You're not the first person who's used that. <laughs> that phrase to, to try to get some a loved one out of the health out of a hospital but then what comes after that mm -hmm. you know with access to care and as you said medication limited during that time i you know just as you were describing that too the the funerals made me think of the obituary that i read of the tuba player benny pete and the mm -hmm. really strong importance of funeral culture in in the south in the united states generally but particularly in new orleans does does that mean that in some time in the future your family will will return to that ceremony possibility yeah so yeah so that's what we tried to do so as things uh, kind of settled down then uh, my father had been cremated at the time but we still had his ashes and we wanted to inter his ashes um so we kind of moved along and we were uh, over the summer it looked like things were better um here um so we arranged that we would have a, an interment of his ashes because they were going to go into a grave with my mother's um and as we organized that about the same time um the us put ireland on a list so we had everything done we had it all regulated and a big part of our thinking was we wanted the two siblings in the states to come home and just around that time ireland got put on a list where if you were to come here you'd have to go into mandatory quarantine when you returned so actually the two american siblings um didn't get to come and i i guess some of it feeds into the idea that um, at the time things were said like you know there will be time for these things to be done in the future and this was the messaging that government gave um, and i think that's not just an issue in ireland you know there was a postponement message that you will get to do th these things again and, and we did try and 
you know, in that way. But actually you don't, because one of the things about funerals here and in many cultures is that they take precedence over all the other things of daily life. If you have a funeral on of a family member and everybody accepts you're going to take the day off work or you're, you're going to have to travel up country or whatever it is, um, that's gone. So it's actually, you know, that was a false promise, if you like, that government made um, around funerals. And as I say, things have kind of been resolved here by having this on street presence. So people now line streets um, as families are coming out of churches and, you know, they find other ways. It's just it was so early um, that, mm -hmm. that people hadn't found ways. But I do think that those things leave scars. Um, and, and later into the pandemic, my husband's father died in hospital and my husband and his family feel that so they weren't allowed visit. So in the six weeks before his death, they saw him twice um, and they have a huge amount of regret. So there's a lot of talk about how people will in the future um, do different things or, you know, it'll be OK when we get back to normal. But for some people, normality isn't coming back. They, they, they just have guilt and regret. Which, of course, as a psychologist, that's very interesting. That's an interesting thing to leave people with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, with that, maybe let's let's take a turn and, and talk about your work. I mean, you've been incredibly prolific during this time, but I want to get a little background before we talk about your COVID work and just um, hear a little bit about um, your research background, the methods that you use, how you came mm -hmm. into social psychology as a field, what kinds of questions have run through through your work and then let's let that sort of flow into the COVID work, which has been um, voluminous. Yeah, so I came into the field, um, so I did my PhD in Queens in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So my interest was in how, uh, in childhood stress and in particular how children coped with the trauma of the political violence in Northern Ireland. And then when I finished my PhD, I began to look at adults um, and in, pretty quickly got interested in the idea of shared identities um, because a lot of conflict and political violence is built around shared understanding of identities and how they these identities might mitigate the worst effects of violence. And from there, I moved into the idea that actually identities can be a social cure. So the idea that if you're connected to other people or you share values or beliefs or um, understandings of who you are as being something bigger than yourself, part of a collective, that that can be very a very positive influence on your health, even if it can damage social relations. So that there's a kind of a yin and a yang to this kind of social identity element. And that got me interested in people with brain injury and people who had been affected by suicide. So all the time interested in adversity and trauma and, and identities and social connections as the mitigation. Um, so, and that, so then when COVID came along, um, it was another form of trauma and very clearly a collective trauma, even though you know, your question is very telling. People do have individual level um, traumas arising from COVID. It's still a shared thing. You know, you immediately said, oh, other people have described that. Mm -hmm. now, just to come back to where you started with with this and your graduate work and, and you know, violence in, in Northern Ireland. I mean, you have a bit of a longitudinal 
uh, aspect on that now, I, I suppose. I mean, can we say things about children who were exposed to violence and political violence in Northern Ireland and, and how they've fared over the life course? Yeah, so one of the things that you find is that actually, particularly in children, is that um, if they have a strong sense of community, um, that that can actually be really um, powerful. They can end up being very protected. Um, so the, probably the, the, the thing that you see most often is resilience. Um, we are increasingly seeing children whose parents um, didn't cope well, but those children having very strong um, appetite for change and not necessarily change in a positive direction. So, and this is this paradoxical thing that you see. So you can have the identity um, can help you feel good. So you might have better well-being because you have strong connection and strong identity. So you might feel good, but you might have very entrenched and quite negative attitudes to the other group. And that's what I mean by the yin and the yang. And I think we're going to see that play out in terms of COVID as well, a kind of an appetite for collective change or collective action mm. um, that's driven by this identity force that has act actually protected people's psychological health. Well, one of the things that I'm really fascinated by, I'm really glad that we started with this, is um, uh, I'm a big admirer of, of this approach and, and of the psychiatrist Robert Lifton, who has written about collective trauma throughout his career and still is. Um, and, you know, in some of his work, I mean, he points to the role of the survivor too. Um, survivors of violence at, and the special position that, that they hold both in terms of forming a community, but also as um, bearers of a special kind of, of truth or understanding. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't know if that, if those concepts map well into, you know, mm -hmm. your work and your earlier work, but I'd like to sort of hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what, so you mentioned there the European Research Council grant. So a key element of the European Research Council grant is looking at the idea um, and trying to establish that there is something like collective growth. So uh, many people in psychiatry and indeed in psychology would say that there is this concept co called individual post-traumatic growth. So that I as a person can develop wisdom because of something terrible that has happened to me, um, that I can begin to see the world in a different way. So arising from my distress or my traumatic experience, I, I can begin to see, for instance, that funerals have a value, Do you know, so that I can then become a great uh, sort of proponent of the value of the funeral. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious just to illustrate what I mean. Um, but in the European Research Council grant, what we're trying to show is that there can also be this collective growth, that people can change how they view themselves, for instance, as a woman. So in the first study that we've done, we've looked at women who were raped, um, Irish women who were raped <clears throat> and who waived their anonymity <clears throat> after they went to court. So rape victims here are protected by law, their, their names are protected by law, even when the perpetrator is found guilty. But there are a couple of cases where women have waived their anonymity. And it's a clear example of where there's no personal gain 
because the reason they're protected is because of the potential stigma. But some of these women do waive their anonymity. And if they don't do it for personal gain, well, then they must be doing it for some other reason. And our working hypothesis was that they were doing it for collective gain. And in fact, when you look at the interviews, now these women speak publicly, they become like you describe a survivor. When you look at what these women say, actually what they say is um, that they changed how they viewed their responsibility to other women. Some of them go further than that and say that they have, uh, they feel a responsibility to the nation to change the system because of the manner in which they were treated. So actually what they're talking about all the time is a change of how they are as women or as Irish people, um, not change uh, in themselves as Orla or an individual. Mm. It's changing in, and it is a, it is a bigger than themselves change. It's, um, and they do discuss how difficult it is and how difficult it is to waive their anonymity. So clearly, it's an example of where there's a personal cost, but a potential collective gain. Um, and I do think that as we come out of COVID, we're going to see changes like this and we're going to see people who begin to articulate what isn't acceptable and what isn't satisfactory. Um, and they will be, I would imagine, survivors because their distress will be part of what drives them. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to psychologist Orla Muldoon today about um, trauma and recovery. And we're going to talk, I'm talking about COVID, and we're going to talk about um, political psychology, lots of topics here. I just want to follow up on one part of that. And, and your findings, do they show a similar sort of pattern across disaster types. This is always a struggle in disaster research because the way that knowledge production is organized in the silos of the academy, um, we have one part of the university that focuses on so-called natural disasters. I hate the term, but you know, nature. Another part focuses on, on the brain. Another part focuses on society or on literature um, and different disaster types. But I wonder what, you know, you describe rape victims. We have COVID victims, victims mm. of war. Do you find much difference across trauma types or do you find that the trauma type isn't really the differentiating factor or, or is it clear? So I, I guess that's a really huge question. So we have looked at different trauma types. Um, one of the things that I would say is crucial is whether or not there is a between group dynamic going on or whether it's a within group dynamic. So are we trying to solve the problem within the US? You know, is it a problem um, th that's about women? Once that problem then gets re-narrated as a problem of gender, you get an intergroup context and you can actually get pushback. Um, so to me, there is a huge issue there about how the problem is 
conceptualized because once it it conceptualized as having an intergroup dynamic i think it creates it actually creates the potential for hostilities between groups um and that's the yin and the yang of trauma again that there can be anger which of course is a cardinal symptom of things like post-traumatic stress um but there can also be this wisdom and they can they can be there at the same time um so one of the things that we will do as part of the erc grant is try and create a method for assessing this and we will look across groups um at the moment our working hypothesis is that a lot of it is to do with context um uh, and the context within which the trauma occurs and whether or not there is the potential for that backlash. Let me ask you about this Health Research Board project on social solidarity and public adherence to health messaging during COVID. Uh, why did you start that project? Yeah, I started that project because, like many things, because I was annoyed, um, because I felt that the emphasis um, in Ireland very early on, for example, we had huge issues around um, cases in meat production factories. Um, and there was a lot of talk about, you know, people really needed to be um, very careful and isolating when they went home and they needed to make sure that they didn't share transport going to work and um, that they um, uh, share transport uh, isolated when they got home, didn't share bathrooms. You know, so it was this kind of um, uh, talk. And our meat factories, despite the fact that we're, you know, huge agricultural industry in the country, a huge proportion of our meat factory workers are migrants. Um, and the factories are kind of in what we colloquially would call belly go backwards, like middle of nowhere. There is no public transport. So people share lifts. Um, they also share housing because they're migrant workers and they might have one bathroom between maybe 10 or 15 people in a house. And here you had um, people uh, and often, too, there would be if people missed work, they would have their wages stocked. And um, so the solution um, was all, you know, was all about what the individual person should do to make sure that they didn't spread COVID. But actually, here was an entire um, scene are an example where actually it, it, people didn't have available, you know, public transport. They didn't have available individual transport. They didn't have available individual bathrooms, individual housing, and they were likely to lose wages if if they didn't go to work. Um, so the to, it, it is a, and that's just one example. But there is clear evidence that public adherence to health messaging is in part due to things like whether or not people have a living wage and they can, you know, they have access to wages, whether or not they have access to suitable housing, whether or not they can, they can actually isolate from their um, families. And then on top of that, I think probably around the same time, there was a national campaign um, where the national campaign to get people to stay at home was a national campaign where the catchphrase was in the Irish language. Um, and whilst many white Irish people like me understand um, the Irish language, migrant workers who staffed meat factories and another example probably would be much of the healthcare service, right, right, they right. wouldn't have any Irish language. So you're like, Why, what are you doing? This isn't going to enhance um, solidarity. And, and solidarity as the basis for action is crucial. Um, you know, protecting other people is actually a crucial 
uh, message to get across, um, particularly if you're already infected. That, I mean, what an interesting example, that one sort of reaching to Irish culture as a presumed basis for solidarity in a moment mm -hmm. of crisis um, that you might not, that health officials might not ordinarily reach to, I imagine. Um, mm -hmm. But then it defines a solidarity for some and, and not for others. I, I just will follow up on that. I mean, can that, it, it almost seems, this happened in the United States as well, and it almost seemed a little overdetermined because these were communities in the Middle West um, that had large Latino populations, their language barriers mm. and cultural barriers there and physical barriers, as you point out. Um, and I've racked my brain about this and thought, was there a way to make solidarity in that moment? In other words, what might the government have done to use that as an opportunity to say, look, there's a lot of people in our community who also need help, but that's not the way it, that's not the way it worked. And, and there was this this real problem of a of a two track pandemic in a lot of those states where immigrants, migrant workers suffered terrible losses. I think here, of course, we're a much smaller country, so here it was possible to get your voice heard, and there was quite you know there was quite good messaging, where actually mm, one of the key Department of Health messages subsequently became um, a kind of a, montage of pictures of every sort of person um, and they actually have continued to use that um, so a much more inclusive definition of nation i think one of the things that spontaneously happens and it's in i think it's in the political psychology special issue is that when people are under threat they often go back to the familiar and of course the people who have the most power in any society are those who represent, you know, mainstream. So they go back to those places um, where they feel are those identities or those sense of connection that they feel um, offer stability. So I do think that there, you know, there is now evidence of rising sort of nationalist sentiment. Um, so that going to that sort of Irish language or Irish culture as first call, or as you describe in the US, um, is perhaps not to be, is perhaps to be expected given the level of threat that COVID brought. But then it's equally as important to remember, even if that is your first reaction. Um, and in fact, in one of the papers that we have from the Health Research board project we show that you can you can dampen that down by being overtly ex inclusive in your messaging by trying hard at being inclusive um, and that there are ways of mitigating against that um, so and i think that probably the department of health here has been reasonably successful at turning that around one of the reasons that that's such a profound issue and maybe it it always is in disaster, but particularly at this time, and particularly with social media, is the amount of disinformation and conspiracy thinking out there in the system. And mm -hmm. that's not only the United States. I mean, I'm most familiar with the United States in that regard, but how does that play into the Irish case? Yeah, so I suppose mostly when people talk about disinformation and conspiracy, in the beginning they were talking about vaccine. But certainly we've seen it here grow up around masking as well. Um, so there is a lot of you know, people talking about masking as as something that can make you ill or um, famously we had somebody here who said that it could reduce the amount of oxygen to your brain so 
a suggestion that masking could cause brain damage, which is quite a stretch. Um, and we have looked at um, vaccine uptake in particular, um, and we looked at all of the studies that we could get globally um, and did a systematic review. And that um, vaccine uptake work, it does seem that crucial to the whole puzzle here is trust. So whether or not people trust um, those people that are speaking to them. But so none of us, even, the, you know, unless we are actually a vaccine expert, none of us really understand how a vaccine works. Do you know, like I took a vaccine on trust. And so when people say, oh, you're a sheeple or whatever for, for doing that, well, Actually, yeah, you, a huge amount of that is true. We can't deny it. Very few of us have down in the de devil detail of how the Janssen vaccine or the Moderna vaccine works. You know, we haven't read the primary sources. We don't really. But we do trust people who tell us that we should take it. Um, and one of the things that we find here uh, and that we found in the literature is that the trust is varying by very in very predictable ways. Um, so here we find that women of reproductive age can sometimes be less trusting. We find minority populations, and in particular, we have an indigenous uh, traveler population. They tend to be very low on trust. Um, in the US, you tend to find that people of low income are low on trust. Um, Non-white populations, and in particular, African-American populations seem to be low on trust. Um, and in another paper that has just been accepted, we argue that this isn't just because they're distrusting. It's because actually this is these are populations with a history of not being well looked after by our health services. Um, so there isn't really any point in shouting at people that they need to get vaccines and they need, which is, you know, sometimes I think how people can experience it um, because their, their trust is low because um, they have seen other people like them or they themselves haven't been well treated within the system. So for me, it comes back to these identity issues again. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that we can see from um, literature around flu vaccine is that you can actually increase uptake if you get the somebody that the person trusts to tell them to take the flu vaccine. So the messenger is really important. Well, you're just sort of following up on that in terms of this this disaster, which has got a very funny timeline to it. It's it's not an event, but it's not climate change. It's 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 mm. playing out over a period of time seemingly long enough to build trust. I mean, we've talked about a lot about, you know, I think the media has focused a lot in the, in the West on the erosion of trust and, mm. and tied that to political factors and outcomes, and that's appropriate. But I've wondered a lot about the opposite, which is, if you thought you had a two-year-long, two-year-plus disaster, wasn't that a moment also to try to build trust, to build solidarity, because the outcome of the disaster is indeterminate, it's going to go a long time, but also to just get more people vaccinated. I mean, just to accomplish very basic public health goals in the in the in the near term. Am I being naive on that or what does what does your research show about that possibility? Well, I would say that that's probably true of Ireland. So when the vaccine was kind of 
before before the vaccine existed, if you like, before we actually had vaccine, the suggestion was that somewhere between 60 and 70% of people would take the vaccine. But in fact, if you look at adults in Ireland, we're up at about 90%. Um, so no, we, do, we don't have that in the under 18s. Um, and it's probably lower than that in the 18 to 25 group, but certainly trust has been built here around vaccines. So, and you know, I'm in, in, there are very many things that happened here that did build solidarity. Um, I would say that we have, a, so one of the things would be this thing called the pandemic unemployment payment. So people were paid if the, at a higher rate and there was mechanisms put in place for if people stayed at home that they still got paid. So these kinds of things really did uh, build public trust. Um, but I would say that there is, that is a, a key thing that um, we need to respect people's trust um, and build on it rather than undermine it. I think some of our nearest neighbours, some of the things that we've seen in the UK have probably undermined trust. Um, so, for instance, leaders not doing what everybody was required to do in terms of restrictions. Um, do you know the restrictions looking like they were really only for the little people and not for the the, the leaders as well? Um, whereas here, in fact, we had a very similar instance um, where um, leaders violated um, restrictions and there was quite a few political heads rolled, um, including um, a European commissioner, you know, an Irish European commissioner. So I do think that there has been ways in which, in Ireland at least, that the trust has been built. Um, I, st I still think it's an issue, but I think probably where trust is highest in this country is that there is a trust in science and in the, the scientists telling the truth about how things are, even if there isn't always trust in politicians. There's so much wrapped up in there that's, and, and so fascinating to also think of the multi-causal kind of, you know, trust, uh, in, increasing trust throughout. and. Of, of course, you know, pre-existing uh, trust in science or familiarity with science. And I really love your point about, you know, even people who, uh, like you and I who are in the academy, if you asked me to explain the mRNA vaccine, I, I wouldn't get too far. Um, so I'm trusting experts, but I'm also trusting accountability. I mean, mm -hmm. just as you're saying that, that there's a system out there um, that tests vaccines and there's real people who do that. And if they make mistakes or they do something wrong, there's accountability for that. And that that's part of a larger political process. So it, the two are intertwined in interesting ways, I think. And, and I think that's, I want to ask you about, you know, how politics factor into this. You're co-editor of a pretty extraordinary volume um, in political psychology called The Political Psychology of COVID-19. Most of it is open access, and I'll um, put a link up to it so people can find that. It, you talk in the um, introduction to it about the promise of political psychology um, to understand these times. So maybe you could just sort of define that term for us, and talk. we can talk about some of the big themes that you hit in this volume. There's some really remarkable articles here. Yeah, so um political psychology really is uh the the study of behavior and, and and mental process associated with politics in in the widest sense so i 
Um, so we're always looking at a contextualized psychology and we're always interested in power dynamics and politics and uh, context and differences between groups and, you know, but I would say key themes are things like power and nation and um, leadership and followership. Um, so in this particular um, volume, which was an incredible amount of work actually, but something it's it's amazing in academia how quickly you forget things. At the time, I was really proud of it. You know, I was really pleased that we managed to get this out and we managed to get all of these people to write their articles and on time. And um, and then when it's done, you kind of forget about it. So when you asked, I kind of thought, oh, I've forgotten about I've kind of forgotten about it. I, I could totally relate to what you're talking about, but <laughs> But people discover things at different times. And when I discovered this, this was, I mean, this thing is a cornucopia of ideas and it's amazing. So the the introductory piece then I was trying, when we were trying to put together all of these articles and trying to get key themes. So it was kind of like an academic exercise unto itself to try and get what were the key themes. Um, and I guess the first one is this idea that you know, we often hear about that somehow that if you stop smoking and stop drinking and stop overeating and exercise a little bit more, your health is entirely in your hands. So your choices are what make, um, you know, matter to your morbidity and mortality. And I think what COVID has shown is that that just is simply not true um, because if when COVID arrived, you are, are, are at the worst stage of things, you happen to be in India, for all the running and exercising and masking and, you know, you at that particular point when that wave went through India, the likelihood um, of you catching COVID was high compared to, you know, being in Ireland. But not only that, if you live in a crowded, if you live in a crowded tenement, uh, scenario and have no access to healthcare, you know, the outcome is going to be very different than if you were the president of the United States and airlifted to a multi-million dollar um, facility that had every drug on tap to treat you. Um, so there are really huge structural forces influencing not only whether or not we get COVID, but how we're treated when we get COVID. And now we have all of these things around vaccine and who has vaccine and who doesn't have vaccine. And these are all to do with um, things that are profoundly about structural forces like nation and, you know, being in the European Union, you got it earlier than if you weren't in the European Union. Um, you know, for those of us who live in Europe, that was a, that was a really important factor. Um, so I guess that's probably the, the, the the first key thing. Um, I guess the second key theme is that um, we almost entirely, when we think about responses to COVID, they're framed in a national way. It's all about national government response and how people, um, so there's a couple of papers in there about how, you know, New Zealand was a success story because they harnessed the national identity to get people to behave in particular ways and whereas the UK was much more of a failure in terms of that. Um, but in the in the overview section, what we highlight is that all these national governments had more or less success because of whatever approach they took. But actually what we really lacked 
was a global approach. And what we continue to lack is a global approach. And in part, that is because we have global organizations like the WHO that don't really have very sharp teeth. Um, whereas national governments do have teeth. They can send out the police and send you back into your house. Um, but the WHO at various points couldn't really act. So we have a situation where we're all at risk of a global pandemic, but the only response that we really have, and the only, you know, the only real string we have is national response. And that doesn't actually make sense. Um, and I guess the last key theme is that there is this issue of inequality um, that keeps rearing its head. Um, and, and if we go back to our conversation maybe at the start about how things might play out and what might the post-COVID world look like, hmm. I think the inequality that people feel in terms of how COVID affected them is likely to fuel political action into the future in a way that we don't yet know um, because there are big groups globally and nationally in all countries who have been much more seriously affected than other groups um, and th those groups will demand change just let me just follow up on a couple of things about this um these high level findings which then people can go and look and and see the um the different articles that are contained within and and exploring you know at a micro level um for example i'll just read a couple of the of the um article uh, titles here war against COVID 19 for example this is a team of of authors including um ha wing chan uh, and a large team of authors how is national identification linked with the adoption of diseased preventive behaviors in china and the united states Another example, examining left-right divide through the lens of a global crisis, ideological differences and their implications for responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's by Benjamin Ko Ruish with a, an, a team of authors. There's a lot of people involved here. Um, and so we've got these high-level findings, in it, but it's really borne out by um, kind of granular empirical work. And I guess one of my questions to this is, you know, how the authors or how you see this just the first one the um the problem of the individual and the structure in public health and that's put public health officials in a real bind and because it's i don't think it's effective messaging to say nothing you do will matter in this situation right? that's just not how public health works but at the same time um I've talked to a lot of public health officials on COVID calls and, and they say, you know, this is the ultimate illustration of how a disinvestment of public health actually mm. manifests itself. Mm. So when we translate that back into political psychology, I wonder sort of just to draw you out a little bit more on that, on that problem, how particularly in the West, the individual is always heralded as it's the individual's right and responsibility to, to build the structure, to maintain the structure. We're all super empowered in that moment pandemic has twisted that into knots, I think. So I wonder how we act on that finding. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess one of the, and I agree with your, your previous speakers who say it's a product of disinvestment in public health. I think that one of the things that's happened here 
uh, and certainly it's happened in the US, but it has happened here to a degree, maybe less so in continental Europe, is that there has been um, a rise in the sort of treatment, privatization of treatment, but there has never been a rise in the privatization of public health. So there is a there is a a, a larger sort of capitalism and the economy is driving um, a lot of what's happening in the treatment side of health, but there's very little happening in public health because of course, public health is government funded. Um, so there needs, to, well here, it has, what it has happened in Ireland is that it has brought real focus into whether or not there should be private health funding at all. Um, so there has been a, more and more debate about the role of private healthcare. Um, and the importance of public health, uh, public health, preventative health. Um, and I think that there will need to be a shift towards preventative health. And that won't just be in domains like public health. Like we need discussions about preventative health measures in education, preventative health measures in prisons, preventative health measures across, across the board in statutory services. Um, and I think that that has been forgotten about that. And it kind of in part because health became a kind of a capitalist enterprise um, that was oriented to treatment and individuals. So I think there needs a complete And the other thing, of course, as a political psychologist, that's very interesting is that people I know in medicine would say that public health medicine is low status. So that, you know, so there needs, that needs to change too. So that sort of high status is the cardiac surgeon and the low status is the, um, and that of course, those power imbalances speak to the kinds of inequities that actually drive forward the, the issues that we're talking about. So it does need, a, 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 it effectively needs government investment. And that's a very unpopular message, it needs government investment in public health. But I do think that because of the way this pandemic has played out, there will be changes like that because there will be angry people. The, you've alluded to that a, a, a couple of times um, and the anger and it's manifesting itself, I think, in many different ways of just speaking to the United States. There's more strikes happening in the United States right now than have happened at any one time in the last generation. That's just one data point. Um, but, but to your second high level finding about the problem of the nation, in the middle of a pandemic. So the nation is the vehicle that we measure things by. It's the the nation, you know, has the power to quarantine or whatever kind of things they deem necessary. It seems like many of these solutions in a pandemic require global political reckoning. I wonder again how you how you think about that you know, as people are looking for a solution, maybe demanding it. Will they be forced to demand those changes at the national scale or or do you foresee some possibility that uh, supranational, I don't want to say global, but you know, larger configurations of governance could come out of this, or that maybe look, the EU could be energized at, out of this, and rather than particular national governments? I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, you know, I mean, I'm here in East Asia, and um, you know, the problem of vaccine access has been a big problem here. And it makes you wonder if we won't see some sort of governmental reorganization of partnership across East Asia that we haven't seen because of the need to have vaccines, just to give one example. 
Mm. Well, my co-author on the political psychology paper is um, James uh, Yu, who is in New Zealand, and he was following things very closely at the start of the pandemic when when things kicked off in Wuhan. Um, and in the paper, he he and in fact, in another piece he has written, he highlights how the WHO was, in, you know, almost paralyzed with inaction at the start um, and didn't feel that it could close close borders. Um, and in many regards, I think the WHO, again, a public health in many regards, a public health body needs more uh, power. But it didn't feel like it could go against serious national players in case it alienated those players. So he, you know, highlights how they actually the WHO were aware that it, that they needed to act, but politically they were afraid to act. So I think that organizations like the WHO will have to be given more power. And that if you think about issues like conspiracy theories and you know, disinformation. You know, you can imagine how that will play. Um, that that would they will be very difficult things to sell to people who who feel alienated and distrustful already. I I can see that. I guess the other side of the the ledger there is if the public health response had been more robust with greater global resources, then you foreclose some of the opportunity for that disinformation to get in there and mm -hmm. and cause those those problems and to build that distrust. We're almost up on time in my COVID calls discussion today with Orla Muldoon. And I want to remind folks of this um, special issue in the journal Political Psychology, the political psychology of COVID-19. And you can check that out, um, find it easily online. Uh, it's with Wiley. So um, we should wrap up, but uh, you got a lot of projects in, uh, underway, but what's next? Um, the 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 big thing probably at the moment is the um, the idea of change and identity change and, and what's coming and how people move away from trauma politically, how, how that plays out. So that's next. Yeah. Well, I want to uh, remind everybody you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today's been a special broadcast at uh, 5.30 p.m. Korea time, 9.30 a.m. Limerick time. And uh, I want to thank my guest, uh, Orla Muldoon for your time today and for talking about these projects and for this work that you've that you've brought forward and good luck with the next phase of it. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Mm -hmm.